Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again this morning for your word. We thank you that in it we find life. You do not leave us wondering what it is you ask of us, but you have spoken plainly so that we might hear and we might be renewed and transformed. I ask, Lord, that as your word is preached, that you would speak to your people here, that your spirit, he would be active, that he would bring life, and that he would transform us into the image of your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We continue on here in Colossians, and Paul is now shifting his focus really into, we could say, the the inner life of the individual. And the personal choices that we make. And this is going to eat up a couple weeks of our discussion here as we talk about how people change. What does the gospel mean for the here and the now? Like Paul has built his, his tremendous foundation of what Christ's work has done in the past. He's even alluded to what we're going to, where the kingdom is coming. But now he's going to zero in on your day-to-day living. How do people change? And ours is a day of which we could say is a selfish and self-worshipful day. The individual person, the individual self, is never to be violated. It alone can determine what is true. It alone determines meaning. It alone even determines itself. To put it another way, the self is self-originating, self-defining, and unquestionable. It's treated as God. God alone is self originating, self-defining, and unquestionable. That is our day. And we live in a world of that time. A call to change yourself is often called oppressive. The only change that is allowed is for me to become more truly myself. That's the only change that is good. And, And to do that, I need to cast off the shackles of society, family, God, and yes, even nature. And so we have things like the transgender movement, the idea that yourself rules sovereignly even over nature itself. What you feel on the inside is more true than what you actually are. And we even have wishy-washy movements that build off of this. This is all tied to the same root, the same idea that man sits on God's throne. We have wishy-washy movements like the uh, body positivity movement, which contains elements of truth in it. You shouldn't judge somebody by how they look. But saying that even doctors can't say obesity is bad is just plain stupidity. This is where we go when we reject God. All of this is to say the idea of change is controversial. You have to be true to yourself, true to your heart, and then and only then you will never be wrong. And that could be the theme song of a million murderers, criminals, and convicts. I just did what I most wanted to do. Who are you to judge? But it is instead the doctrine that rings most loudly in society. A few weeks ago, um, we were watching the animated version of Mulan with our kids. I find that movie hilarious for many different reasons. And the closing credits song came on, and it's called True to Your Heart. It's written by 98 Degrees and Stevie Wonder. And here's a sample of the lyrics from that song as I'm sitting there with my kids thinking, man, we should get them to bed. This, this was what came on the TV. Open your eyes. Your heart can tell you no lies. Be true to your heart. You must be true to your heart. That's when the heavens will part. 
Open your heart. Your heart can tell you no lies. It's appealing, right? It, it, it makes sense. Who doesn't want any restrictions upon themselves? Who doesn't want to feel justified in everything that you choose? Who doesn't want to be their own God? But the consequences of such an ideology are massive, both culturally and in the church. And the destruction, the hurt, the carnage, and the bodies are literally strewn all around us every day. You see it everywhere. We are selfish and we are a self-righteous people. And into all of this, the Bible gives us a different call. And that call is this. You're a sinner by nature and by choice. God created man to be good, to represent him in his creation. Right? Man was not always such. In other words, it's not inherent to be, or to, for humans to be wrong, to be sinful. Right? That's a result of the fall. Adam was created good. Jesus was born sinless. You will be without sin one day. But the Bible posits this, that in the interim, you were born sinful and you loved the sin. And this is why the siren song at the end of Mulan is appealing. It affirms us because deep down, we feel guilty. The fact that we live in a moral, our moral world, we try to suppress that by telling us, no, you're right, you're always right. How could you possibly be wrong? But here's the blunt truth. If you are fine on your own, if all you really need to do is be true to your own heart, then you don't need a Savior and you don't need Christ. It's not too much to say you can't really blend this type of thinking with Christianity. And sadly, many Christians have done so and many churches try to do so. If you are fine on your own and you are your own standard, then you do not need Jesus Christ. And if that is you this morning, I have something to say to you. Good luck. Good luck being your own God. And may the surety of your sin and the surety of your own smallness gnaw away at you until you realize you need a Savior. Because the reason why you have to keep telling yourself those pop songs is because you know it's not true. The truth of the, the matter is this. We are all needy. All of us are called to a standard that we cannot reach on our own. And that is often the... the flashpoint of so much of our anxiety and our anger and our insecurity is that we know that we've done things that are wrong. We know that this is not how it should be. And in these verses today, as well as next week, Paul lays out the call of the gospel for life today. How people change. In particular, how do Christians change? How do those who profess faith in Jesus, how do we grow to become more like Him? Because every Christian enters into the Christian life with baggage and sin. And that's there for many reasons. One, so that God might display His glory through transforming us and keeping a sinful people in a sinful world, slowly making them more holy. But it's also there to keep you and me from becoming prideful, arrogant people. If you ever get to the point where you're, you're looking down at other people like, wow, they're really sinful and I'm not. The Bible says, take heed, you're about to fall. The good news of the gospel is that change is not only possible in Christ, but it is empowered by Christ. And this section of verses, starting in verse 5, starts with the word, therefore. Therefore. Paul does that often, or so that in some tra translations. Paul basically, he's transitioning from a foundational truth. Because of these things I just said, therefore these things follow. 
And at the heart of what it comes before is this idea of setting our minds on things that are above that we talked about last week. And the things that are above are not non-physical things, but it's Christ who's seated at the right hand of God who rules over everything. And to set your mind on that which is above is to set your mind on the reign of Christ and to live like it's true because it is. And to not think on earthly things. That is sinful behaviors. And that the heart of all of that is our union with Christ. That therefore points to verses 3 and 4. Look at those again. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's the foundation for the therefore. You have died with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ. He is your life. And if that is not true, then change is utterly impossible. Any real lasting change becomes impossible. But if it is true, then change not only becomes possible, but it becomes to some degree inevitable. The living God cannot reside in you without something happening. Without something changing. And so we have to hear this as we talk about work, because this will require work on our part. I'm not saying your work saves you. Let me say that again. Your work as a Christian can never save you. Rather, the call here is that through the work of Christ, something fundamental has shifted. That God through Christ has done a new work in you and that everything hinges upon that. And so yet, Christ does the major lifting there, you are still called to live in response to that. You are still called to do certain things. This is sometimes us more Calvinistic people go way off the deep end and say, well, we can't, there's really no commands in Scripture, no obedience required of you. It's utter nonsense. Most of the New Testament is imperatives. That's commands. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. The Bible is not just wasting its time putting those commands in there for you. But you can't do them without Christ. If you try to do them on your own, by your own wisdom, your own power, then you will fail. So therefore, in some sense, change is both expected and guaranteed because Christ is, has won and He is stronger not only than your sin, but He's also stronger than who you were before Christ. He's stronger than your old self. And so that gets us into this idea of how do people change? The therefore. The first step in changing and growing to become more like Christ is to kill your old self. That is the meat of this passage, this call to put something to death. It's hard to get more countercultural counter than this. Instead of being true to your heart and doing whatever you want, the Bible says here, kill your old self. Kill that old heart. Put it to death and do so, or do it in such a way that it's kind of merciless. You're at war within yourself, and you need to put it to death. You are called, in a figurative way, to kill yourself. Thus following the example of our Savior who picked up his own cross, his own instrument of death, and brought it to the place where they would kill him. In the Gospels it says, pick up your cross, follow Christ. Listen again to verses 5 through 8. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. 
anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. There's a lot of parallels here in those five verses with everything that's come before. First, we talked about last week, he says, put to death what is earthly in you. What is this earthly? It's referencing the verses above where it says, don't think on the things of earth. What are the things on earth? It's not physical things. It's living in a sinful way. Second parallel you'll notice here is we are called to put to death the old self. And death is a constant theme throughout this portion of Colossians. We just read in verse 3, you have died in Christ. You have died in Christ. Also, put to death that old self who has died in Christ. In chapter 2, your sins, your guilt, and your old self have been objectively nailed to the cross and put to death with Christ. And yet Paul here says, put to death that old self. Christ has killed your old self. Oh yeah, also you need to put it to death too. You need to live as if it was true because it is. You still have that residue of your old person dwelling within you and he or she will not die without a fight. But knowing that Christ has delivered the definitive blow to your old self is meant to encourage and equip you. So with that foundation, we have to ask, where does this change come from? Christ has put to death my old self. I'm also called to put to death my old self. Where does this change then come from? What needs to change in order for me to change? In their uh, book, which is a wonderful book, and I recommend that everyone in this room should read it. It's called How People Change. It's written by Timothy Lane and Paul Tripp. I know Paul Tripp has tripped over a lot of things in the last couple of years, but when he sticks to this kind of stuff, he's really good. And he lists things that we want to have changed so that we can change. Here's the false hopes that we generally say, if this will change, then I will change. And the most common one I think that we all do is our circumstances. If my circumstances were to change, then I would get so much better. This is the one that is sold to us all the time. What I need is a spouse. What I need is a better spouse than the one that I have. What I need is a a new job. My life wouldn't be so terrible if I just had a little bit more money. If I just had better friends. If I just got out of this season of my life. Things would be so much better for me. And we think that the primary problem is our environment and not ourselves. Now of course, living in a fallen world, there are times where there are situations in your life that most definitely need to change. There are circumstances that need to change. You can find yourself in wicked and vile situations and there is absolutely nothing ungodly about doing everything you can to get out of that situation. There's also nothing ungodly about taking a better opportunity at work. There's nothing wrong. In fact, there's something incredibly great about finding a good spouse. But if you think all your problems are going to go away, i got news for you, they just doubled. Because you got two sinners now instead of one in your house. So don't think that your circumstances, if they change, that everything will get better. People find themselves in new situations and things tend to go better for a little bit and then the same old problems arise. You know what they do? They think, man, I need my circumstances to change again. This world is broken. And there will be no paradise until Christ returns. And I think this is most easily seen Uh, in divorce rates. 
They always say like 50% of marriages end in divorce. It's kind of true, but it's not really. It's more like 30% of first-time marriages end in divorce. And then each time you get married after that, it skyrockets. When people get divorced, you talk to them, pretty universal. It's always his fault. It's always her fault. It's never my fault. And they find this new person, now my marriage is going to be great. And they just brought all their problems in with them. And then they get rid of that one. Changing the circumstances doesn't change the heart problems. Again, that's not saying there are marriages that you should get out of, biblically defined. But Scripture teaches us that we are sinners and that our primary problems come in here. That's what needs to change first. That you need to have a level of contentment with whatever situation you find yourself in. And that you are responsible for your actions, whether you're in a good situation or a bad situation. This is Christianity 101. Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount. If your brother slaps you on the cheek, turn and give him your other cheek. My brother just sinned against me. And Jesus says you're still responsible to act righteously, even when you're sinned against. Very countercultural. The command to put to death your old self provides that beginning framework of change. Christ is the foundation, then you and I are called to work and build off that foundation. He killed your sin. He killed your old self. Now you work that out with fear and trembling. And he gives us motivation in these verses. He says that you should be motivated by the fact that the judgment of God is coming upon our sins. We don't like talking about judgment, but we live in the moral universe. And as much as we hate it, when we look out into the world and we see the guilty get off scot-free and we wring our hands and say, what's wrong with our justice system or what's wrong with the world? God hates it when the guilty go free more than you do. His justice is pure and it will come. And sometimes we even have well-meaning Christians say judgment shouldn't be used. God's judgment shouldn't be used as a motivator. And yet God uses it as a motivator all the time. He does right here. But even as Israel was about to enter the promised land, God set out chapters and chapters of blessings and curses. It says, you're about to go into the land. Here's the blessings you'll get if you practice faithful obedience. And then you know what? There's like three times as many curses, he lists, that they will get if they disobey. And at the end of all of it, Moses says, I know which one you're going to choose. You're going to choose disobedience. But I've set before you life and death. Choose life. And so there is a sense in which we are faced with a choice. In a similar, similar way, Paul is doing that here in verse 4. We see that the reward that we get is that we get to appear with Christ in his glory. That glory of the perfectly powerful Christ, the one who's going to remake all of creation. When he appears, we get to appear with him and partake in that glory. That's the result of faithful obedience. The threat is that of his judgment, the judgment of the Son for all eternity. The list of deeds given here to be put to death should also be noted. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He adds another list in verse 8, including anger, malice, wrath, slander, and obscene talk. But that first list revolves primarily around sexual sin. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire are all likely references to sexual sin. So as messed up as you and I live in this age, as messed up as our age is, and it is royally messed up in the sexual arena, Rome 
and that of Colossae, those who lived and received this letter, theirs was just as bad and in many ways far worse uh, than ours is today. Many commentators have noted that we are not really becoming a post-Christian society, but we're really reverting back to a pre-Christian paganism. A pre-Christian paganism. And they're largely right. Anyone who argues that Jews and Christians didn't know about the wide range of, range of sexual sins in pretty much all the empires they were dealing with, whether it be Assyria, Babylon, um, Persia, or Rome here, including all the different variations of homosexuality, if anybody ever tells you that, that the Bible didn't know about those things, they're absolutely full of it. Right? They did know about them. Right? They're not ignorant. The people who are telling you that are either ignorant or they're lying to you for a reason. There were Greeks and Romans who claimed to be born that way. There were effeminate cross-dressers addressed in the book of 1 Corinthians. Scripture addresses all of these and it condemns them all. These are not new. This is what I always find really ironic. You have the one hand, we have this battle going on in the church and people will say, nobody knew about these things. The people who wrote the Bible didn't know about these things. And you have the people outside the church saying, these things have always existed. They're not really wrong. They've been doing this from the dawn of time. Can't have it both ways. And really the people outside of the church are being more honest often than those trying to corrupt the church from within. But Paul spends all this time here because sex is a powerful motivator. And God has provided a good and holy expression of it in lifelong marriage between one man and one woman. The, the condemnation of sexual immorality is not to say all sex is bad, but it is to say the perversion of God's good gift is bad and pursue it the right way. And so this last item on the first list also must be noted. He says covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul references the sin of of covetousness, which is an internal sin. All these other sins are largely external, but he turns inward, and we, we can't miss that. Because it's the internal life that motivates the external life. All those other sins are merely the fruit of our thoughts and our desires, our minds and our hearts. And this idea, this stress on the inward man, has always been present in God's law. That is, God doesn't just want you to do the right thing. He wants you to be the right kind of person. The Tenth Commandment forbids coveting. And as many commentators note, in that last command, the capstone of the Ten Commandments, God intentionally moves the law inside the heart of Israel. Right? Don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat, don't murder, don't do all these things. But oh yeah, also don't covet your neighbor's wife. Also, don't covet your neighbor's stuff. It's not enough to not steal, to not commit adultery, and to not murder. You also must not covet, you must not lust, and you must not hate. And this is Jesus' entire point on the Sermon on the Mount. He goes through and he says, it's not just enough that you don't formally break the law, but you've been breaking the law in your own heart. Therefore, your righteousness, he says, needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. Because there is a way that you can just not break the law externally and be wretched on the inside. And this is why the change needed is not your circumstances or even primarily your behaviors. But it is what motivates and drives your behaviors. Why are you doing the things that you're doing? Because the fountain of all change is our reasoning, our self-talk, 
the justifications we tell ourselves, the lies we believe, and the things we desire. Putting to death the old self is an internal act that changes external realities. And we need God's power to do that. So the call is to kill our desires, and we do that, as I said last week, by starving them, by believing the truth and renewing our hearts and our minds. Again, the example I used last week is that when you eat sugar, you build an appetite for sugar in your body. You start desiring more and more sugar. I think about that sometimes when I give my kids too much sugar, and then they ask me for more. And I know exactly what's going on because I used to drink a bottle of Dr. Pepper every day. It was a lot of sugar, and man, I loved it. But then I always wanted more. In the same way, the more you feed your lustful thoughts, the more you indulge them, the more you play around on them, the more you dwell on them, the more you will develop a greater and greater appetite for them. Therefore, you must cut them off and you must do so early. You cut them off by labeling them as sins, by identifying the lies you're being told, and by repenting. It's pretty basic stuff, but it's hard to do in the moment. And then you replace those bad thoughts with the truth of God's Word, thus renewing your mind by the power of the Spirit and the Word of God. And that leads us to the second part of how we change. We replace the old with the new. The process is not just don't do this or don't think like this, but it includes replacing old thinking with new thinking, old feelings with new feelings, and old actions with new actions. Look at verses 9 through 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, but have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So the imagery Paul uses throughout here is this idea of put on the new, put off the old. And it's really akin to putting on and putting off a different pair of clothing. You put off your old pair of clothing and you put on your new one. To steal a modern example, it would like, be like if you got traded from one football team to the other. You would take off the old jersey and you would put on the new jersey that identifies you with the new team. And that is something you actually do. The team trades for you. God takes you, but then you are commanded to take that old jersey off and put the new one on. Christ has objectively moved us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of life. So the expectation is is that we will work at living in that kingdom of life. To put on the new self. The new reality Christ has bought for you. And as new creations, we now have new desires. We have new truth being revealed to us through Scripture. And these are constantly at war with our old practices. And the kicker is, is that our old sins are often very ingrained in us. Often you will do them without even thinking. They become a reaction. And so the process of change can be very, very hard and time-consuming. How does it occur? The process of change happens by preaching the gospel to yourself daily and renewing your mind daily. It is a slow and deliberate process. One of the reasons why God commands us to go and confess our sins to others is because that's part of the process of changing. If I don't go and confess my sins, I'm just keeping my sin unchallenged. If I yell at my wife and I refuse to actually own that sin and humble myself enough to go before her and say, man, I was wrong, I was really wrong, and that's all on me, 
I'm way more likely to yell at her again the next time. If I have to humble myself each time I do that, I become a whole lot less likely to keep doing it. God has given us plain ways to grow and to change. Put on the new self, he says, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of the Creator. The new self is a reality established by Christ that you actively put on, but you do so by being renewed in the knowledge after the image of the Creator. How did sin enter the world? Satan lied to Eve. She believed the lie. She ate the fruit. How will sin be put off in your life? By getting rid of lies and being transformed by the truth. The remedy for lies is truth. Christ is the embodiment of truth. And so the list of actions to put on here, found in verse 12, are only possible with two things. The work of Christ in your life and your mind and your heart being actively renewed. This is a holistic knowledge. The more we really know the truth, the more we really understand the gospel, the more you will really be changed. And so you must put on that gospel every day, rebuking yourself when you're sinning in your thought life, confessing that sin to the Lord, and putting on the new, the knowledge that God has given you. Paul says, in essence, the same thing in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Paul says that based upon the mercies of God, based upon what he has done, you need to offer your life as a living sacrifice. And you do this by not being conformed to this world, but to instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do I do that? Well, I put to death my old patterns of thinking. I put to death even my old patterns of feeling. Again, one of those lies we're sold today, your feelings are ultimate. No one can tell me my feelings are wrong. Sometimes your feelings are wrong. Earth-shattering, I know. And you are to, instead of being conformed by the lies of our day, to wipe those clean with the truth of God's Word. This is the battle of the Christian life. It is internal. But through changing our thinking and our feeling, then and only then, our outward actions change. For there is a way to do all of this, to just change how you act in front of everybody else and to not change within. That's just becoming a Pharisee. The solution, though, is not to say that your actions don't matter. Your actions matter. Because out of your heart flows your actions. And your heart needs to change. The process of change is putting to death those old ways by holding up the truth of God's Word to label these things as they are, lies. To repent of those lies and that you have believed them. And then to train your heart and your mind in God's truth by the power of His Spirit. He has given you everything you need. One of the things I've found in my own life that has been most transformative is after I fall into sin is to remind myself this was a lie. Instead I was going to get this, I actually got the exact opposite. 
And when you start realizing that you're sold a bill of goods again and again and again and again, you realize, I'm not going to listen to it next time. How many times did you listen to a friend who came up to you and lied to you every time and said, hey, if you sit on this chair, it's going it's to hold your weight. It fell down under your weight. Hey, if you sit in this chair, it's going to hold your weight. Oh, it fell down. Oh, how about this one? I'm really telling the truth this time. If you sit in this third chair, it'll hold your weight. No, it won't. The result. The result is found in the second half of verse 10 and 11. A new restored person. And having put on the old self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and Christ is in all. There's a lot of things I could say about those verses here this morning. And honestly, I probably should have done a whole sermon on them. Uh, These are some of the most important verses in our current moment, both in the church and in the culture. With our constant obsession of dividing everybody up into different identity groups and then to tally up all of these grievances between these groups and thinking that that's somehow going to produce good life and unity and, and happiness in society is a new level of stupidity that can only be, dis- be ascribed to the wretchedness of public education. We are told now that things like race are essential. We are told that we should, especially by those who we could label as woke or social justice people, that race is es- essential to identity. I've read their works. They don't hide this. They're saying that you are black, you are white. That is essential to who you are and how you live and how you should be understood and how you should be treated. And they are making the same foundational argument that the KKK made and still makes this day. That your race should be the primary way in which we interact with people. It's just directed in a different way. One against minorities and one for minorities. But to say that race is essential to someone's identity is anathema to the Christian gospel. It's nonsense, no matter what direction you point it in. You see, we have no center in our society anymore. Instead, we have an ever-expanding list of aggrieved groups who count up their grievances and prejudge everything by incidentals like skin color. This is wokeism, and it is ugly and destructive to the core. Robert Lethem nails the problem here. He calls it postmodernism. He's right, it's that too. Postmodernism is unable to account for the unity in diversity. Postmodernism is a militant, diversifying principle without a basis for unity. It's like it's militant. You can think about like militant Islam. It's militant and it just diversifies and divides everybody. Is that not what we're living under right now? Why are we so divided? Because we have no basis for unity anymore because we have no God that unifies us. And so many politicians exploit this. They like to divide us up, play up the grievances, saying they care for this group or that group, but all they really want is power and money in their own pockets. And really the individual is reduced to a mouthpiece for the victim group. And if you don't say the same lines, you know, you've all of a sudden don't belong to that group anymore. Right? Your skin color doesn't matter anymore because you won't say the things we want you to say. Then it's not really about skin color, is it? It's about ideology. How's that for compassion? And Paul into all of this says, in the church there is no Jew, there is no Greek, there is no circumcised, there is no uncircumcised, there's no barbarian, 
That's an ethnicity. There is no Scythian. Another ethnicity. There is no slave or free because Christ is all and Christ is in all. So let that sink in. Cultural dividers, ethnic dividers, racial freedom or slavery, there are no more such distinctions within God's people. These things don't matter as identities before God and they shouldn't matter as identities within God's people. Because all of you were crucified with the same Christ. All of you rose with the same Christ. And all of you find your life in the same Christ. There's a basis for unity in the church. And any pastor peddling wokeness or ultimately peddling something that seeks to undo what Christ has done on the cross. It's no small issue. You're like, but they're so good on all these other things. Yeah, they are. But the consequences of our, their ideas will be around for generations and the fruit of that rotten tree will be plain in your children's time. So let me make this clear. There is certainly a sense in which I do not cease being white as a Christian. There is certainly a sense in which black Christians do not cease being black as Christians. Men don't cease being men and women don't cease being women. But Paul's point here is that those are no longer your primary identity. And so, you are a Christian who happens to be white or a Christian who happens to be black. But if you ever put that identity before being a person in Christ, that is idolatry. A sub-point off of this, this also means that you are not guilty because of your ethnic heritage. Nor are you innocent because of your ethnic heritage. Put it in modern parlance, there's no such thing as white guilt, just as there is no such thing as black guilt. You need not feel ashamed of your cultural heritage, except where your cultural heritage runs against the plain laws of God. Then you can feel ashamed for it. And so, as Americans, you can feel a deep pride for the founding of your country, while also feeling a deep regret for slavery. In fact, I think you should feel both. And it really shouldn't, it really shouldn't be that hard. I don't know how we've made such a mess of all of this. But Paul is getting at here is the, the idea that you and I are now a new humanity who find their primary identity in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And this new humanity is accomplished by, power, or by the power of God and by his grace. And what he is really doing is restoring the entire human race. People from every tribe, nation, and tongue will form the new humanity. To be a human is to bear the image of God. And it says we are being renewed after the image of our creator. It's being restored in Christ. The image was lost, or not lost, but damaged. We just sang this. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. Christ is renewing us. That includes us in this room here and now. And so the call is to behave like it is true. And that's the key to it all. To change into living the new life. It's Christ who is your life. Christ who is in all and who is all. The universe, including us, were made by Him and for Him and He actively holds you together and He dwells in His people. He's Lord over everything. And that is the good news this morning because when the Bible says, hey, you need to change. It also says, hey, you can change because Christ is in you. And he's coming back. Let's pray.
Lord God, we thank you for the good news of your gospel this morning. We thank you that in Christ, he not only died for our sins, he not only died that we would be declared righteous, but he also died that we might be sanctified, growing in holiness day by day by the power of your word and your spirit. Lord, may that be true of us here at Christ Bible Church. May we not just see the universal lordship as something out there, something far from us, but as something that is integral to everything we do, that is integral to how we live our lives, and that as we grow and we change, Lord, we would not become prideful or arrogant, but we might be filled with worship. For Christ is in all, and Christ is all. It's in his name we pray. Amen.